This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. I want to start out today with a little different kind of illustration, and so uh, Mitch, you're getting the house lights, somebody's getting the house lights so I can see out here. Um, I need to uh, figure out who in the room, now husband and wife both have to be present in order to win, all right, who's been married the least amount of time and who's been married the most amount of time, okay? So I know there's probably people here who maybe your spouse isn't present today and you would have won, I'm sorry, no consolation prizes for you, but... I need to, the ones who are actually in the room together today. So, so if you've been married, um, let's say, for, has anybody been married less than a year that husband and wife are both here today? Two years? Two years? Three? Two. Oh, two. Okay. Two. All right. Figure out among yourselves real quick who's been married the least amount of time, and one of you come up here, and has anybody been married over 50 years and your spouse is in the room right now? Over 50 years? 45. Anybody more than 45? Chip, all right, come up here, Chip. All right. Who's, oh, oh, Jamie, hey, what's up? All right, I got a little gift for you guys. And do you have one of these already, by the chance? One Perfect Life. Charles Whitaker, is he in here? He gave me this to me a few years ago. It's a great book. It's the harmonies of the Gospels all put together. Stand right there, you got to pose with it, all right? Um, come right over here. Um, and, and so this is great. If you want to pick one of these up, it's the harmony of the Gospels. John MacArthur put all the gospel account, the narrative of the gospel together in sequential order because you know that some gospels have stories that other gospels may not. And so I use this a lot as I'm studying through Mark. I'm looking and, and, and checking the other passages and seeing what the other gospels had to say and how they kind of relate to one another and the stories that go together. So it's a really, really handy tool. All right, and so you're not done yet. How many years have you been married? 45 and a half. All right, and how about you guys? It'll be two years in May. So almost two years, Okay. So, Riley, I need you to help me out here, okay? Who's the most married of these two groups of people, okay? Who's the most married? 45 years, almost two years. Who's, the, who's married the most? You think he's married the most? All right. What do you think, Cody? Who's married the most? Is he more married than, than he and his wife? Um, is that true, you think? Anybody else have a different opinion? What do you think, Lane? All right. The truth is, right, they're married the same. They're both, in God's eyes, equally as married. Now, we know, practically speaking, right, that that doesn't mean that you understand all the things about marriage that he and Linda understand, right? Right. right? So, I mean, I bet that he can finish his wife's sentences most of the time, right? <laughs> she can um, probably predict what he's going to say. Uh, probably better than you can because he had more experience at it. He probably naturally bends to looking out for her more uh, naturally than you would for your wife because he's been doing it for so long. And so even though you're both equally as married, there's a difference practically in the relationships. And so, thank you, I appreciate it. Give them a hand. And I want you to think about your relationship with, with God the same way. I want you to think about the fact that if you are in Christ... Even if you're a new baby Christian, 
and somebody who's been walking with Christ for years and years and years, they're both equally as saved. They're both is equally united with Jesus in salvation. But practically speaking, the person who has been saved the longest should be further along. Why? Because they've known Jesus longer. They've had more time to intimately spend with Jesus and his word. As we sang in the song a minute ago, your word, about your word, and it gives us uh, just this view of God that's incredible. And the more that we're in God's word, I'm getting a really kind of a back, a little bit of a ring back on this, Kirk. Um, the more that we're in God's word, the more we understand about Jesus. We understand what it means to be in Christ and united with Christ. And that's, those are deep, deep things that we never fully come to comprehend in this lifetime, for sure. But it's just a growing process. And we talked last week how that um, the illustration of, of Jesus as the, as the bridegroom and his church, us as the bride, and how we're connected in, uni, in union with Christ and, and the beautiful picture that presents. And so my challenge as we go through the Gospels, as we study the book of Mark, that you will begin to rest in Christ. Rest in your relationship with Christ. And as through his word and through the church and the body of Christ, he reveals himself to you in greater ways that you'll begin to see the gospel even greater than you did yesterday in anticipation of even seeing it greater the next day. The fact that in Christ we can rest because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. That I deserve to stand before a holy God and fall on my face and say, woe is me. I am not worthy. There's nothing worthy in me. And Jesus steps over and says, you're worthy because of the cross. You're worthy because of me. And see, we come into a greater understanding. We grow in our understanding of the gospel. We grow in our understanding of what Jesus did for us, how that all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ Jesus, how that he's transforming us, how that he took the penalty of death that I deserve. He took on all my sin, and he gave me his righteousness. And so as we go through this gospel of Mark, and we're seeing Jesus, and we're watching as Jesus moves closer and closer to the cross. We're learning about him, but it's setting us up to understand who we become in Christ and the spiritual blessings we inherit because of Christ and how that our relationship with Christ is real and is personal. And it's, and it's something that really we build upon, just like a marriage we build upon, we continue to build upon. And we see as we go through the Gospels that we no longer need a priest. We no longer need a high priest. Jesus is our high priest. There's no going to the temple to worship. This is not the temple. Your body, believer, is a Christian, as a Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus dwells in you. There's no more going, the priest going to the holies of holies to offer sacrifices. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And you see, as we understand more and more of our relationship with Christ and we grow in the understanding the depths of that that God becomes our relationship becomes real and it becomes personal and so I challenge you as we go through this book and as we look at Mark which one of the main purposes of Mark is what it means to be more of a disciple of Jesus and, and what the cross means and those go hand in hand because we're told as I talked about to take up our cross and follow after Jesus so why study the book of Mark we want to know and follow Jesus we want to know and follow Jesus. And so as we look at today's text, Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 28, I want us to talk about what it means 
to find our rest in Jesus Christ. And look at this passage. Verse 23 through 28. Let's read this together. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abin... Sorry, let me say that. Abinathar, sorry, Abinathar, the high priest. I even phonetically wrote that out there and still can't get it. Uh, the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is, in, uh, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we're humbled at your word. God, we thank you for the truth that it speaks to us this truth that you speak to us and the Holy Spirit that's inside of each believer that's bringing this to life, illuminating it, teaching us how to love you more and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And God, today as we look at this passage specifically, I pray that you'll allow us to glean the things that you want us to glean from it. God, give us wisdom in the areas that we need wisdom. And God, I pray that you'll give us grace in the areas we need grace. In your name we pray. Amen. We've seen the last few weeks that the ministry of Jesus has come under a great deal of scrutiny, especially by the religious leaders of the day, particularly this group called the Pharisees, who were the populist group. They were the popular religious group of the day, and they had the support of the people, and so they were tracking Jesus around, literally following him around, uh, trying to trap him. And this really happened not because he was doing miracles or because necessarily the, the most of the things that he was teaching. The problem with the Pharisees had with Jesus was the fact that what he was claiming and who he was claiming to be. The fact that we saw a few weeks ago that Jesus actually forgave somebody's sins was shocking to the Pharisees. How in the world could you forgive people's sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who has this type of authority, they thought. And then they took issue with him as he went to Levi and told Levi that, hey, follow me, be my disciple. And Levi was a tax collector, and then Jesus went and had dinner with tax collectors and sinners, and the religious leaders of the day thought, how in the world could this man just keep company with these terrible, awful people? Nobody who claims to speak for God and who claims to be doing divine things could ever be with these type of people. These people are lawbreakers. And so they're watching Jesus. They're following him around. They're trying to catch him. And then in this passage, did they catch him? Did they, they get him for breaking the law? His disciples were breaking the law. Go look at 23. He says they're going on the Sabbath. They're going through the grain fields. And as they make their way, the disciples begin to pluck the heads of the grains. And then the Pharisees, they think they got him red-handed. They say, look, why are you doing this? You know, this is not lawful. You cannot do this on the Sabbath. So did Jesus break the law? Of Moses? Did they catch him in the act of doing something that was against God and his disciples? He was supporting his disciples doing this? Well, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, we see where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And on, on verse 8 of chapter 20, we see this. We says, 
God, uh, Moses wrote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work or you or your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. And so the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week was Saturday. And the Sabbath had this idea of to cease, not to work. And so on the seventh day of each week, the Israelites would stop working in order to focus their attention upon honoring God and worshiping God. And some of you may know this, but a Jewish day wasn't like we look at a day. Jewish day was sundown on Friday night would have been the Sabbath, starting sundown Friday night until sundown on Saturday night. And this wasn't just a kind of a law like speeding would be to us. All right, you get a little slap on the hand, you get a fine because you broke it. No, if you look in Exodus chapter 31, this was a capital offense. If someone broke the Sabbath, they were put to death for disobeying that law. And so as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, and during that day, many of the side roads and things would weave their way through grain fields and cornfields. And so they were hungry, and they began to pull the heads of the grain to eat them. And the, the, the Pharisees thought, you know what, right there, we got them red-handed, working on the Sabbath day. That's unlawful. How can you say you're this rabbi and this person who's so special if you're just blowing off God's commands and not doing what God said in the law? Well, the truth of the matter is no Old Testament law prohibited the plucking of grain in order to eat on the Sabbath. In fact, Deuteronomy 23:25 actually permits one to take a handful of grain from his neighbor's field even to satisfy his hunger. And as we were talking about the last few Sundays, the rabbis at this time had added numerous, and over the years had added numerous, numerous laws to the law to protect people from breaking the law. So not only did you have the law, you had laws on top of laws and oral traditions on top of oral traditions passed down from generation to generation just to make sure that original law was protected and not broken. But if you look in the scriptures, which Jesus only elevated the written word, he had no time for the oral traditions of the Pharisees and the rabbis. And if you look in the written world, uh, word, the only uh, things that talk about in, the, in scripture of what not to do on the Sabbath, don't make a fire for cooking, don't gather fuel, don't carry burdens, don't conduct business, don't do occupational type things on that day. But over the years, many of these laws had been interpreted and added to, meticulously detailing what was acceptable, what was unacceptable on the Sabbath. And then you had the people who went about trying to enforce these laws. And what happened was, instead of the Sabbath being something that was to re-energize people and help people to be ready for work, six days of work the next week, the Sabbath had become a crushing burden on the people, to the people. And the rabbis had made up, I mean, this crazy stuff. I mean, so many laws that were given, tons of laws that, that protected the Sabbath. Like you couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. Why couldn't you take a bath on the Sabbath? Because you might spill water on the floor, and when the water hits the floor, it washes the floor, which is work. And so therefore, don't take a bath because there might be work done. All right? If someone's tying their shoe, their sandal, and they accidentally knot their sandal, you can't unknot it and retie it. Because to unknot it would be considered work. And so these things are absurd. They come up with the fact that you could only walk 
1,999 steps, okay? That was the maximum you could walk. 1,999 steps on, on Sabbath day. You step that extra step, 2,000, eh, violation of Sabbath law. And so as Jesus' disciples were going through these grain fields, not only were they, in the eyes of the rabbis and teachers, harvesting grain on the Sabbath, but they were also, I'm sure, in violation of the travel restrictions themselves. And although Mark doesn't account for what John does in John chapter 5, and that's what's beautiful about this book that I gave out, that you can go and see this in these, as this account goes. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus healed a lame man just right before this on the Sabbath day. And so here Jesus did something great. He healed a guy who was lame, yet the Pharisees, not caring about the guy who was healed, the fact that Jesus made him well after years and years of being lame, but he broke the law. He broke the law. And they didn't care about the guy. All they cared about was the law. And so in this text, we see Jesus state two very important things. Two things. The first one is the Sabbath was made for man. And the second one, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let's look at the first one. The Sabbath was made, wait, made for man. Verse 27. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. It'll be on the screen for you if you'd like to follow along there or flip in your Bible. Uh, in the story of creation, in the narrative of creation, it says in verse 2, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Verse 3, and so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so Moses, we know, wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Moses is writing this, and he shows that in the creation account that God set a pattern, and he said that I rested, God rested, there was no command here to keep a Sabbath. There was just God setting a, an example for people that said that God rested after his creation. Did God need to rest? Was God tired? Absolutely not, but God rested. But we have no record before Moses and before Mount Sinai of the Sabbath being required by people to keep. And so it's, in, it's important that we understand kind of the history of the Sabbath here. I'm going to go to Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 14. Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 14, says, And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes, and a law by Moses, your servant. So he said, You made known to people through Moses the law and the Sabbath. And so Sabbath was given to Israel in the Mosaic covenant to Moses, and it was between them and God and not only to set them distinct and different from the nations and to live and display God's character to the nations, but also um, Deuteronomy 5.15 tells us that it was to remind them of their slavery in Egypt. And so in Exodus, there's going to be several scriptures we're going to look at today. Hang with me. Exodus chapter 13, verse 16 and 17 says this, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So God set a pattern of a day of rest at creation for the benefit of man by giving him a day to rest from his labor, rest from his work. But before the Mosaic law, 
there was no, there was no law given to the people that said you had to do this at Sabbath. God set a, a, a precedent which was revealed by Moses several, quite a few hundred years later, but yet um, we see that this was set in the Mosaic Covenant. So God made man first, and he existed for several hundred years before the Sabbath was ever commissioned as a law. Thus the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath, was it a good gift? Yes, it was a great gift. People working six days, they were worn out. Their animals were worn out. Their servants were worn out. Their fields were tired. But the religion of the Pharisees at this time, the Judaism of the Pharisees, instead of making it something that was for the benefit of the people, the benefit of the land, for the refreshing and healing, instead they made it chains. They put chains on the people and strapped them down with burdens after burdens after burdens. And so... Let's remember here clearly who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with. Jesus has made his claims at some level. He's going to, as he gets closer and closer to the cross, he's going to be clearer and clearer about who he is. There's going to come an event where he asked Peter, who do, you, who do you say I am? And he said, Jesus, the son of the living God. And that was kind of a critical moment in the Gospels. And after that, then you see Jesus headed toward Jerusalem and to the cross. But we're dealing with the Son of Man who is the Lord of heaven, who made heaven and earth. Jesus Christ was God. And so can you imagine this bombshell that he dropped on them when he told them in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath? The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. How could that be that Jesus could make that claim to these religious leaders of the day? Not only does he have authority to forgive the sins, but he decides what's lawful and what's not lawful on the Sabbath day. Jesus was saying, I was there at creation, John 1, 1. I'm the creator God. I define this. I'll tell you how it should be done, not you. And then he makes his first case. He gives it an example. And I love, you know, it's easy to skip over and miss this, but look what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did? All right, maybe you missed that, but all right, he's dealing with teachers of the law. He's dealing with people who, who idolize David, lift him up as a hero. These guys, most of them probably had memorized the first five books of the Bible. And he asked them, have you not read? All right, that's a little insulting, right? Have you not read about David? And they're thinking, uh, what? Where are you going with this, Jesus? And he directs their attentions to Scripture, not to their oral traditions and their authorities. He doesn't care about those things. And like a good attorney would, he cites a precedent as he looked in the Old Testament to justify the behavior of his clients, the disciples. And he says, have you read your Bibles? And I bet they found this insulting, didn't they? And look what he says. He said, have you ever read when David, what he did when he was in need, his men were in need, they actually went into the, into the house of God? And they went in and they took the bread of the presence. You may have heard this called the showbread. What was that about? The showbread, which was in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This account can be found in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. David is a fugitive from Saul. David is running from Saul. Saul is king. He hates David. He's jealous of David. David will eventually become king. He doesn't like him at all. He's pursuing him to kill him because David has shown him up. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. David was a mighty man, 
of, of war, and he was jealous, and he wanted to kill David. So he and his men were fleeing, they um, were running, and they were starving to death. And so where did they go? They go into the tabernacle, and they ask the priest for food. Well, the only food that's there is the food that's called the showbread, and the showbread was to illustrate that God's presence was in the tabernacle. God's presence was there. There was 12 loaves, one for each of the tribes of Israel, as a sign of God's provision. This food was only to be eaten by the priests. So what was Jesus' point here? Jesus' point, if a hungry king, David, and his men were permitted to eat the holy bread from the tabernacle, then is it not right for the Lord of the Sabbath to permit his men to eat grain from the fields? And David, if you look back in Leviticus 24, David actually broke the law. Of course, we know Jesus broke no commandment, no law. He was the perfect sacrifice, the one and only sacrifice. And the reason he could be that sacrifice was because he perfectly kept the law during his time. There was no sin. He was the perfect lamb of God. And so he did not break the law, but he pointed to David, who really technically was in violation of the law. And Jesus picking out their great hero, King David, he did that for a purpose. He, he showed, hey, here's your ideal king. Here's the one that you look to, yet what do we see from him? And here I am, the son of man, the son of David, and look, I'm here to show you that you have your priorities totally out of whack. Your priorities are confused because God is more concerned with meeting the needs of his people than he is with protecting religious traditions. God is more concerned with meeting the needs of his people than he is with protecting religious traditions. Pastor John MacArthur, the author of the book that I gave out earlier, he writes this, God never intended ceremonial, ritual, and tradition to stand in the way of mercy, kindness, and goodness toward others. Thus, Jesus explained to the Pharisees that even originally the Sabbath was made for men and not man for the Sabbath. God's purpose for the Sabbath day was to give his people a weekly rest. But the Pharisees had turned it into turned a divine blessing into a dreaded burden. By claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus essentially declared his authority over the whole of the relig uh, Jewish religion because Sabbath day observance was its high point. So Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the guy in the line of David. And all of this points to me. All of this points to me. And Jesus, as I said, Jesus and his followers, his disciples were observant Jews before the cross. But Jesus, to be the perfect sacrifice, he kept the law perfectly, but it was ultimately a shadow, Sabbath even, a shadow of what was to come. It was a shadow of what was to come. 1 Corinthians 2, 16 and 17, 17 Paul explicitly refers to the Sabbath as a shadow of Jesus, which is no longer binding since we have the substance, Jesus. Let's look at this verse, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the cross brought in a new era, the new covenant, Jesus once and for all, final sacrifice. And what I love about Jesus is that he left no ambiguity regarding who he was and what he was about. How did he do that? Because he rose from the dead. We'll celebrate that in a few weeks. 
with Resurrection Sunday. But think about what happened at the cross. We, we sang about it just a little bit ago. The temple veil that separated the holies of holy. What was inside the holies of holy? It was the area where God's Shekinah glory dwelled. His special presence was among his people. Only the high priest could go there. The veil was rent into, you know where it was rent from? From where? From top to bottom. Why was it rent top to bottom? Because only God could have done that, right? Only God could have torn it from top to bottom. Opening up the way. Something radical happened at the cross. No more, as I said at the beginning, no more priests. No more blood sacrifices. In fact, he just put an, uh, an exclamation point on that in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed completely so there could be no more sacrifices to point people to him and him alone. No more priests to intercede for us. We can go straight to the throne room of God because of the man Jesus Christ, God man Jesus Christ, who made a way for us on the cross. You see, there's a reason why we say it's all about Jesus. Because we naturally, as people, we, we like to know exactly what's required of us. We like the list. We like to know, okay, is this okay or not okay? Is this thing... And, and you know what we do as human beings? We try to come as close to that line as we possibly can without crossing it once we know what the rule is, right? I mean, it's true, right? Um, example... Somebody I won't name, um, who's a, an official in this town, he told me this. I won't tell you who he is, but you probably figured it out. He said, the judge, I don't know if this is true, Chip, the judge who deals with speeding tickets will allow you nine over, okay? So he'll just throw it out. Is there any truth to that? Is it true? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said, he'll throw it out in front of him if it's, if it's less than 10. So what do we do? We go nine, right? Set the cruise control, nine over. Because that's human nature. We're going to push it as far as we can push it. We don't like ambiguity. And the same thing is true with when God gave the Sabbath. A good thing for people. But really didn't lay down a lot of like stipulations. Just keep the Sabbath holy. Don't work. This is for your good. Yet, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, the religious leaders over the years, they added and added and added and added to protect the law. Like, God, let us help you out here, all right? We're going to help you by helping people keep this. And we're guilty oftentimes of the same exact same, the same thing. We like legalism. Even, and we're going to talk about this in a second in a chart, but there's different opinions on what the Sabbath is today. Should we keep the Sabbath? Um, is Sabbath Saturday? Is it Sunday? And, what, and actually, you got ahead of me. There's a chart. It's in your bulletin. If you have extra good eyes, you can see that at really good glasses. All right, it's also on the app. But there's, there's different opinions, kind of narrow them down to four basic ones. But the thing is, we like specifics. We like to know. Like, okay, it, it, growing up, my, my dad was under the conviction that the Sunday was the Christian Sabbath. And so there were certain things that we just couldn't do around our house. We could not mow the grass. Um, sometimes, unless we begged, we couldn't play sports. There were certain things that we couldn't do and and. But it really was never about, like, no offense to him, they were great, great teachers and really led us to Christ and taught us the word. But there was really no understanding for me, maybe I missed it, of really why we were doing these things. It was just law to me. It was just like, you know, you can't do these things. This, this was a special day, so you don't do these things. Yet the Sabbath 
was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so there should have been instructions how the Sabbath was helpful for our spiritual lives and help us to focus more on Christ and see Christ in a, more for who he was. And we were a product of the environment of the churches we went to where we were, um, you know, it was a lot of legalism, a lot of rules, and that was kind of just one of the rules, but we, I had no idea why it was a rule. I, I didn't know why we did certain things and didn't do other things. Because we don't like ambiguity, so it was easy to make a list and say, okay, here's the things you don't do on it. But the, the Bible is not clear about all these things that the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day came up with. It, God said, here it is, it's for your good. And Jesus was showing something totally different here, that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of the people. It was made for the benefit of the people. Now, as we move to the, the new covenant, where we no longer need a priest, we no longer need a sacrificial system, we no longer need a certain day of the week to say this is a holy day because every day is a holy day before God, in my opinion. And there's disagreement on that, even good people, good Bible teachers. Some people say, you know what, the early church, church um, they worshipped on Sunday, and you see the first day of the week had a special significance, even though you did see the, the Jewish uh, converts to Christ, they continued to go to Sabbath, um, honor the Sabbath day by going to synagogue, but Jesus... Um, because of Jesus. Now, Sunday is the new Sabbath. And some people in this room, you believe that. Here, here's the thing I see from Scripture, and we're going to look at a few more Scriptures in a second. I see in Corinthians and Galatians, I see that there should be a lot of grace in these things where we don't judge other people based upon our convictions. That if your family has decided that, you know what, just like my family did, that Sunday is going to be our Sabbath. We're not going to watch sports, or we're not going to play sports. We're not going to participate in this, or watch movies, or TV, and all these things. I mean, that's great. I mean, if, if you come up with that, and you teach your family why you're doing those things, and how that it's a, a focus on Jesus, and what he did for us, and how that he fulfilled our Sabbath rest, as Hebrews talks about, that can be a really, really great, great thing. But it's not something that you decide it's good for your family and then you begin to judge everybody else on because they're not doing it. And so as and I, I encourage you to look at this chart, look up the verses, and like I said, there's a lot of ambiguity. You can people can make their case in scripture. I really, really feel like that after looking at, at the scriptures, I, I, I firmly believe that the entire law code, the Mosaic law, was made obsolete because of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. The new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. Therefore, it's new and you have old. Does that mean that there's no longer morals and, and, and values that we live by and we don't understand God's character and his holiness? The law reveals the holiness of God, the character of God. And I think if you skip ahead that and, and come back, we'll come back to it, the next chart, there you see what you see is, go to the chart, the, the, like the slide 20, I think. You see that God has an eternal transcendent law that's his moral law that's who he is he is his character and this was revealed at mount sinai in the mosaic law but the law of christ now supersedes the mosaic law but god's eternal transcendent law has never changed and in fact just to help us out with that the new testament provides the other nine clearly state the other nine these things are part of being holy and being like god and so there, there's no ambiguity about the other nine. But as a code, as a system, that's been done away with. 
And now we are of the new covenant. I know this is a little heady for some of you, but I'm going to go, go back to the Ephesians passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. For he himself is our peace, Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and, and, and Gentiles by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he carried and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Those who were far off, the Gentiles, the near, the insiders, the Jews. And so he said it was an end to the law. And if you think about Acts chapter 15, I don't have time to look at all these scriptures. Acts chapter 15, in the early church, there was a lot of questions. Should the Gentiles have to keep the law of Moses? Should they have to keep all the things that were in the law? And this was a big debate, and it was a hot debate, and it caused a lot of division and strife among people. And you had these Gentiles who had no, no knowledge of things like the Sabbath day. They had no knowledge of uh, the different ceremonial commands within the Mosaic law. Yet, when they became Christ followers, the Jews wanted to bring them into a Jewish way of being a Christ follower. And so they had this big meeting in Jerusalem. All the apostles got together to decide what do we need to require of these Gentile believers? Should we require anything from the law of Moses for them? And so after a debate and discussion, they came down to the fact that let's don't burden these people. And this is not just salvation here. We're talking about fellowship, membership within the community of believers as well. And really the linchpin issue at this point was circumcision. The circumcision. And I, and I think that's key to remember this because those of you maybe who struggle with understanding, like what is the Christian's relationship to the law? And, you know, I, I just don't really know if I feel like that's all been done away with. Um, circumcision. Clear case. There's no, there's no ambiguity there that the believers did not have to be circumcised. Titus. Paul refused to circumcise Titus. So if you build your case on the fact that the law has continued on, then what do you do with circumcision? What do you do with Titus? There has to, you have to deal with that issue because that was part of the law. And so you had these, believer, these believers coming, and, and so this debate, and, and they decided that, you know what, they don't need to be burdened down with keeping the law as part of salvation or to be a member of this new community. And Scripture teaches us that the Old Testament law of Moses, what was it? It was called, Paul called it a schoolmaster, to show us our sin, a tutor to bring us to Christ. And so some people want to take the moral, take the Old Testament law, and some of this may be, for some of you, you, this may be a little bit too much in the weeds for you, but hang with me for just a second. Some people want to take the law of Moses and break it apart as ceremonial, okay, these are like the, the customs that the Jews had, uh, judicial, these were more of how they ran their government, how they ran things. And then the moral law, the moral law. Okay, and, and as I said in that chart, that the law, the law of God, the character of God, the holiness of God transcends all that. It's, it's over all from the beginning of the universe to the end, which we know there's no, God had no beginning. There, there, it's through all human history, God's holiness and his character rules and who he is 
dictates how we live. Be holy as God is holy. But yet, as you go into the, the law and you try to break it apart based upon, okay, is this moral or is this judicial or is this ceremonial? I find that almost impossible to do. I was looking in Leviticus chapter 19, and in verse 19, uh, Moses wrote, Obey all of my decrees, speaking for God. Obey all of my decrees. And then verse 13, a few verses before this, he said this. He said, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. We would all agree with that, right? I mean, you don't oppress your neighbor because the law of Christ says, Love your neighbor as yourself. How can you oppress your neighbor? How can you steal from your neighbor? And so we would agree that's, that's, that's truth. It's new covenant truth. But look at the very the, the, the last part of this verse. Go to the next slide. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. All right? Pay your workers. The same day they earn it, you pay them, okay? The same verse that says don't rob and don't oppress your neighbor says pay them the day they work, all right? So I don't know how many lawbreakers we have in here, but I guess that if you employ anybody that you're guilty of this law. And so you see, when you begin to pull the law apart and try to say this is moral, this is judicial, this is ceremonial, you run into problems. And that's why I feel, and like I said, go back and look at the chart later and, and think about it, talk about it with your family, with your, with your K group, be an interesting discussion. But the law as a, as a code, as, as a covenant ended, and now we have the new covenant. But look at Romans chapter 2, last scripture I want to look at. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's the moral law that's written on people's heart. There was no Sabbath law that was written on a Gentile's heart. But there was a, the, the law of God's holiness, who he was, and loving people as God loves and love, loving others as we love ourselves. That transcends all generations, all cultures. Robbing, stealing, adultery, all these things, these are universal God imprints upon us that these are his truths. This is a, because it reflects his character. So resting on the seventh day, was prescribed only for Israel, in my opinion. The other nine were written on everyone's conscience and reinstated in the New Testament. And so now, as Christian believers, New Covenant believers, what do we do with Sabbath? What do we do with Sabbath? Well, let me say this. Clearly, from the beginning, God set a pattern. And if you're working seven days a week, burning the midnight oil every day, you're not in line with the precedent God set in the Old Testament. I think that we all should incorporate Sabbath rest into our lives. But when we begin to specify for people or even for ourselves as law, it has to be a certain period and, and you have to do it this way or that way, and we begin to focus on the doing rather than the resting, there you run into legalism and problems. And so I encourage you to follow your conscience in many regards in this. Don't follow the world. Don't follow the flesh. Don't follow the devil because the world will have you working seven days a week. The ball games will have you out there every weekend if possible, spending time on 
trivial things that really don't mean a lot, I mean, mean nothing in, in eternity. And you see, the world and its system wants to pull us away from the love we have for Jesus and the law of Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Look, I'm not your conscience. I don't judge. It's not my job to judge you. It's your job to stand before God and make decisions about what that looks like in your family and how you live it out before God. And I would never get up here and condemn anyone or to your face condemn you for how you live this out in practice. But the most important thing I think that we get across today is that Jesus is our 24-7 rest. And if it's not all about Jesus all the time, then we are in sin. We've missed our, the point of our lives. We've missed why we were created and why he redeemed us in the first place. To bring glory to God. To live for him and not for ourselves. Do I dare quote the verse again? Galatians 2.28. I'm doing it every week. Might as well continue, right? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I just can't get past that verse because it says that life is not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. And think about it. You, it's not, you can't compartmentalize. Here's my life. These are the things I like. And then here's my church, my religious life. This is the things I do for God, and now I do these for myself. Some way, it's hard to do. All of this has to be brought together because Jesus is our rest. He's our Sabbath rest. Go back and read the book of Hebrews this afternoon. He's our rest. And all those things I said at the beginning about our union with Christ, that's what we look to. That no matter what I face, no matter what I go through in this life, I can rest in who God is and what Jesus has done for me. And through all the ups and downs of this life, I know that in Christ, God is for me, not against me. And while it may seem like everything's against me because of the tragedies and the loss that we experience, that's where we go to the promises of God's Word. That's where we grow like Chip and Linda in their relationship with one another. We go to the Word time and again, and we look and we say, what does God say God says that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But God, that can't be the case. How, how can that be the case? By faith, I believe. And Paul said at the end of his life, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. We struggle, we're pulled, we're conflicted, but at the end of the day, we keep the faith. We understand who we are in Christ, and no matter what happens, God is always for us, not against us. For his glory and for our good. And for some people, that may mean sacrificing your life in Liberia, Africa, as Buzz Beecham is right now. For other people, it just may mean tomorrow morning you get up and you head to the office, but you're not just heading to the office because you're in Sabbath rest with Jesus. And you go and you share that rest. You display that rest. And you show the joy of the Lord in that rest. 24-7 Sabbath. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for Jesus Christ. And 
him crucified and risen again. And God, I pray that you will help our lives to be more and more centered upon you. God, forgive us where we all are guilty, myself included, of compartmentalizing, of checking out, punching the clock spiritually. And God, just help us to just live for you in our, our living, our breathing, our working, our sleeping, our eating, our sports, our activities, all of this be for your glory and for your honor. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness and the redemption that we have. And God, I pray that you'll help us to rest in that, to know that, that you desire a relationship with us. It's real and personal. And you desire for us to be in your word, to know your truth, to, to delight in your word, and to know the truths that will set us free from ourselves and from the flesh. And God, I pray that you will help us just to remember the gospel day after day, week after week, month after month, for 5, 10, 50 years. And God, continue to walk with you and impact this world for you. In Jesus' name we pray.